Coke or Pepsi? How many Coke? How many Pepsi? Oh, looks like Coke's got the edge there. Um, how, I was going to say Bruins or Trojans, but I don't think I'm going to... Because I just thought, well, you're in church, so you wouldn't be a Trojan fan. So that's why I figured. How about this? Border wall or no border wall? Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> Speaking in tongues or no speaking in tongues? Organs and choirs or electric guitars and drums? Women in leadership in the church or no women in leadership in the church? Uh, are you saved because God chose you or are you saved because you chose God? See, there's a lot of things that divide us, and some of them are more important than what color a dress is, right? There, there is a lot of things that, as Christians, we face that we disagree on. Um, and, and the interesting thing to me is that when Jesus prayed for his church, now this is John chapter 17. Grab your Bibles, go to John 17. When Jesus prayed for his church in John 17, this is right before the Last Supper, Okay? And he is praying for his disciples, and we know that he is specifically praying for us, you and me. And the reason that we know that he's praying for us is because in John 17, verse 20, in the middle of his prayer, Jesus says to the Father, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, meaning the twelve, but for those also who believe in me through their word. And as I, as I was just talking about, if we take that commission seriously, <clears throat> we make disciples and they make disciples and they make disciples. If you're a Christian today, it's because somebody was faithful enough to do what he called us to do. And so Jesus, knowing that, said, I'm not just praying for those who are my followers today, but those yet to be born, those who will hear through the grapevine. And that's us. So Jesus is praying for his church in John 17, and I wish we had a ton of time that we could tear this apart, but let's just dive in at John 17, verse 13. He says, but now I come to you with these things. I speak in the, let me start again. But now I come to you and these things I speak in the world so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. So whatever it is he's praying for, it has to do with our joy being made full. And I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. So whatever it is he's praying for, it has something to do with the word of God and how it works in our lives. Verse 15, I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. So whatever it is he's praying for, for us, it assumes that the evil one is going to continue to attack God's people. Can anybody say amen to that? Right? That that continues. That that was not just some weird thing at the beginning of the church, but that the enemy has been attacking God's people ever since. And God has one plan for the salvation of the world. It's the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and the ministry of his church. There is no other plan. And so if Satan couldn't do anything to stop the crucifixion, if he couldn't do anything to stop the resurrection and the victory that comes in that, he is doing everything he can to get in the way of the church. And so he prays for us that we would be protected from those attacks. Verse 16, 
They, meaning us, are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. More emphasis on his word. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. For their sakes I sanctify myself, that they themselves may be sanctified in truth. So he's praying for us with the understanding that one day we are going to be the players on the field. That we are going to be the ones who are getting attacked. That we are going to be the ones who are doing the ministry. We're going to be the ones reaching out. We're going to be the ones who are a city on a hill, a light that is shining so the people will see him and glorify him. We're going to be those ones. And so he prays for us. Now pick it up in verse 20. I do not ask on behalf of those alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. Even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. So of all the things he could be praying for, he's praying that we would be one. And in case we don't understand what he means when he says that that his followers would be one, he describes it. He says, just like the Father and the Son are one. Now, this gets us into these deep waters of theology where we have to talk about how there is one God and he exists eternally in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, right? And none of us really understands that, but if you're a believer in the Bible, you know that it's true. There is one God who exists eternally in three persons. There has always been unbroken fellowship within the Godhead. God did not, I got, I got news for you that may shock you and upset you. God did not create you because he was lonely. He did not decide to make people because he was so bored and had no relationships. He is relational within himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You cannot separate the Father from the Son. The Father and the Son are one. It's mystical. It's hard to understand. It's not like anything else, and it happens to be the absolute truth. And he says, I want my church to be one in the same way, unbreakable, undeniable, uninterruptible. I want to make, I want, I want to see the church become one. So apparently this issue of unity and love for one another and oneness in the church is a big deal to God. And, and I was thinking about this. I thought, how many times have I thought, I just wish I knew God's will in this particular matter. If I just knew his will, I would do it. But sometimes I don't know what his will is. And it's always so hard and frustrating. And I think, I just wish I knew his will. Guys, if you want to know the will of God, it's right here. In John 17, he prays that all of us down through the ages who are his disciples, his followers, his children, that all of us would be one. That's what he wants. He wants us to live in unity. It has been God's will from the beginning. You don't have to turn there, but you can write it in your notes. Psalm 133 verse 1. Psalm 133, verse 1, he says, Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. All the way back in Psalms, you say, well, but what about before that? Let's go all the way back to when Roger was a kid. Book of Genesis, okay? Book of Genesis, Garden of Eden, and he's creating man. He has created man, he's created the animals, and what does it say in Genesis chapter 2? It says, it is not good 
for man to be alone. And that's his impetus for creating woman. And in so doing, creating the family. He, he says, it is not good for man to be alone. I know, I designed man. I know what is best for man. I know how man works and he doesn't work in seclusion. And that's not true. That's not just true for men. It's true for women. It's true for children. It's true for everybody. We were not made to be in seclusion. We were made for community. It's always been God's will that his people would be unified. That's why he created the family. That's why he created the church. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 27. For you are Christ's body and individually members of it. I love the order there. It's not that you are an individual and you come into the body of Christ. It's that when you come to know Jesus, you are in the family of God. It's part of the definition of who you are. There's no way to define you otherwise. Again, we have to understand that as important as we are individually, and as important as it is that God has shaped you uniquely and that there's no one else like you, only you have your gifts, only you have your talents, only you have your experiences, and all of those kinds of things. As important as all of that is, the reason your individuality is so important is because you are a piece of a puzzle. He designed you to fit with the rest of us. And we are better together. We've been talking about this for weeks. Here's the thing. We are defined primarily by our relationship to God and therefore to his family. That's our primary definition as Christians. And so every other affiliation that you have in your life is less important. You may be a part of a political party, and you may feel strongly about your political views. Less important than your commitment to the body of Christ. You, you may be a part of a labor union. Less important than your commitment to the body of Christ. You may be a part of a soccer team. Less important than your commitment to the body of Christ. Or you may think of yourselves in terms of being a part of an of a ethnic group or a racial group or something like that. Or maybe you think of yourselves in terms of the nation that you're a part of. And you say, you know what? I'm an American. I'm an American first or... Uh, Listen, if you're a Christian, Jesus said that if we want to follow him, we have to be willing to let go of everything else and follow him, right? He said, if we're going to follow him, our love for him has to be so great that by comparison, we would be willing to walk away from even our closest family relationships. Now, that is mind-boggling. Because the Bible is the one that tells us how important the family is. And yet he says, if you have to leave mother or brother or sister or whatever in order to follow me, that's what you have to do because your affiliation to Jesus and therefore to the family of God becomes the most important defining affiliation in your life. All of it pales in comparison to the fact that we're children of God and therefore members of his family. And when you think about those affiliations, whether it's like a political party, if you're a Democrat, you are by definition and not a Republican, right? And those are the bad guys and we're the good guys. If you are uh, a member of a certain racial group, you are, you are defining yourself in terms of that, then you are by definition not one of those other people. If you're a part of a social club, you're in the club, you have the cool jacket and all that kind of stuff, you, that's what defines you and you are not part of that. What we see today is so much in gang life and, and people join street gangs and they join street gangs and they say the number one reason people join street gangs is for a sense of what? 
belonging, the sense of family, right? And listen, if you're wearing red, you don't wear blue and vice versa. That's how that works. Whenever you define yourself in terms of one of these limiting definitions of a group that you are a part of, it is sort of an us-against-them attitude that we tend to take. The coolest thing about being in the body of Christ, well, it's not the coolest thing, but a cool thing about being in the body of Christ is this. It's not us against them. It's us for them. When he called us to be a part of his body, he didn't call us to renounce everybody else and follow him because everybody else becomes unimportant or everybody else becomes the enemy. No, because in following him, we will do what he does, and that is love those who are not already part of our group. The church is the only grouping like that, the only institution that exists for the benefit of those not in its membership. That's what God has called us to. What binds us together in Christ, far more significant and powerful than whatever it is that may separate us. If we allow anything to separate us, if we allow anything to steal our unity as the body of Christ, we will be worse for it, and so will be the world that God has called us to reach. Unity in the church is so important that Paul writes about it in almost every one of his letters. Almost doesn't matter which one of Paul's letters you open to, read through it, you'll find something about the importance of unity. But we're just going to look at one today. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Okay, if you're in your Bibles, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, then 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And, and it would be great if we could do the whole context here, but we don't have time. So let me just give you, beginning in verse 17. He's writing to them. He's been talking about issues of submission. And then uh, in verse 17, he sort of changes the subject. And he says, but in giving this instruction, I do not praise you. Because you come together, not for the better, but for the worse. What a statement. He says to the church at Corinth, when you gather on Sundays, it would be better if you stayed home. You come together not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, verse 18, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you, and in part I believe it. There must also be factions among you, so that those who approve may become evident among you. Therefore, when you meet together, it's not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in your eating, each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry and another is drunk. What, do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? In this, I will not praise you. And he goes on to describe this judgment. The judgment that is coming upon them because they have dishonored the Lord's Supper and the unity that it involves. And he says, this is such a serious sin that in order to protect the church, I'm going to have to punish some people. And he says, I have been punishing you. Let me tell you what's been going on. You know how you've had this rash of sickness in your church? It's because of this. You know how some people have dropped dead in your church? It's because of this, he says. If you go home and read the rest of the verses after verse 23 and forward, you'll see this. 
He says this is so important that you're dishonoring the, the table of the Lord. It's so important that you're dishonoring the unity of the church that I'll do anything to protect my church even if I have to kill some people to do it. So you have to understand what it was like. In the, in the first century, this was almost universally true as far as we know in all of the churches as the gospel is spreading outward from Jerusalem. That the tradition was that you would gather in the morning on the Lord's Day, which was Sunday, the day of the resurrection, and you would have worship, which we continue with that tradition in most churches today. And then you would stay together and spend the day together. And in the afternoon, you would have this huge feast. It was called a love feast. And all the churches had love feasts. Today, we call these potlucks, okay? But in those days, they called them love feasts because it sounded godlier. And so they would have these love feasts and basically everybody would come and you would just bring like a big picnic basket for your family and maybe, you know, a bag of Doritos to share with everybody else. And you put that on the, on the common table and everybody would get together with their families and their friends and the people in their close associations and the rich people would be over here. They would probably be eating at tables with linen and silver and all that kind of stuff and having somebody serve them and they would be eating sumptuous meals over here would be the poor people who were eating peanut butter sandwiches that they managed to scrape together if they had anything. And the church is divided amongst these different groupings of people at the love feast. And the love feast is going on all afternoon. And so they're eating and drinking. What are they drinking? Wine, right? And so they're all drinking wine all day. After a little while, people are starting to get wasted. And all of us know what this is like because we've all been to like a family Thanksgiving and Uncle Ernie got wasted, right? And embarrassed everybody and made a mess of the whole thing. And we know what that's like. So you get people who are drunk and they're starting to say things they shouldn't say and do things they shouldn't do and all of that kind of stuff. And it's getting ugly, and then the pastor would go up and he would get everyone's attention and he would say, hey, everybody, it's now time to share in the Lord's Supper. And they would get the bread and the, and the juice and they would pass it out and they would do what we just did this morning. Only they would do it with animosity in their heart. They would do it with shame and embarrassment and frustration and pride and all of these things. And it was a joke. It was an addendum to the end of a drunken party. And Paul says, you got to stop. Be better if you didn't even come together. See, this issue of unity in God's church is really important to God. Next week, we're going to unpack this issue of unity in the church. We're going to talk about what is Christian unity. How is Christian unity different than other kinds of unity. How is it different to be a part of the church than it is to say be a part of the Elks Lodge? How is it different to be a part of the church than it is to be a part of your family that you were born into or married into? Um, and, and what does real unity look like? What's he talking about when he calls us to be one? And what are some of the counterfeits that we tend to settle for and spend in spite of the fact that he calls us to be one, we call it oneness, but it's not really oneness at all. But for today, let me just ask you to think about an important question. How important is unity to you? 
What are you doing to promote unity within the body of Christ? Have you ever even given it a thought? That it's your responsibility as a member of the family of God to promote unity within the church. What are you doing about that? Or maybe I could ask it another way. What are you maybe doing that threatens the unity of the body of Christ? How invested are you in the body of Christ compared to how invested you are in, say, your career? or your schooling, or, or your hobbies and interests, or even your family at home. Right before Jesus served the Last Supper, He prayed for us. And He didn't pray for our health. And he didn't pray for our comfort. He didn't pray for success in our careers. He didn't pray for our happiness. (laughs) He didn't pray for most of the things that we pray for for ourselves. You know what he prayed for? Unity. That we would be one. Apparently, unity in the body of Christ is pretty important to Jesus. How important is it to you?